Hello, I'm Raga Hamid, a director at Portland Communications. And in celebration of International Women's Day, I'll be speaking to two phenomenal women about how far we've come with gender equality. Joining me today are Joe Coburn, one of the BBC's most experienced political correspondents and the presenter of BBC Politics Live, and also former government advisor and political consultant Selma Shah, who was special advisor to Sajid Javid when he was Home Secretary and is now partner and senior advisor at Portland. Together, we delve into the structural, social, and personal barriers that are holding women back and how we choose to challenge them. This is To The Point. Hi, Joe. Hi, Sama. Hi. Thank you so much for making the time out today. I'm very delighted to have you both here. As we celebrate another International Women's Day, women continue to make strides. During a very challenging period, we saw women leaders and scientists shine in the face of COVID-19. We also saw the U.S. elect its first female vice president as Scotland made sanitary products free for all. And equal pay became a reality for women footballers in countries like Brazil and Sierra Leone. Um, and there's so many more amazing stories of achievement and activism around the world. However, research shows that none of us will see gender equality in our lifetime, and maybe not even our children. Um, in fact, a few months ago, ahead of the pandemic, the World Economic Forum suggested that gender equality was still about a century away from many women in the world. And of course, the stakes are even higher now with the pandemic. So my question to you both is, why have we not been able to make gender equality a reality? Selma, we'll start with you, as I know you're very interested in structural inequality. Thank you, Ragad. Uh, yeah. So first of all, I think it's worth noting that, you know, a real push for gender equality, I would argue, has only really happened in the last century. So it's not surprising to me that it's going to take another hundred years, but that's at the current trajectory. So let's think about actually what we can change and how we can intervene to actually speed that up, because I think that is also possible. Um, why do I think we still have this structured inequality? Well, quite frankly, because we still live in a man's world. And there are two things I think that are really important to this. One um, is economic. And the second, I think I would argue is social. The first thing is that actually women's contributions aren't measured properly. So whether that's um, in terms of productivity, because of the caregiving um, elements that, that women, only women add to the economy, or whether that's because, you know, we aren't valued for what we do, whether it's as, as mothers, you know, who take time out um, for maternity leave and actually do that kind of lion's share of child rearing as well. Um, and I think that has to be given some real attention from policymakers to think about how that value can be added to the economy, because I have a feeling that it will supersede anything that, you know, your equivalent person does, you know, if you don't have that sort of extra load of being a caregiver and what I like to call the CEO of the household, which is definitely how I see my role uh, <laughs> at home. The, the second thing that I would just say in terms of structural inequality, and it's something, it's something that's new to me and something that a friend of mine has introduced me to, and I, it's, it's sort of weird to talk about it, but it's the idea that the female physiology in terms of our cycles, in terms of um, our hormones and structures, is never accounted for. So we live in a man's world because the nine to five job, the way that you're supposed to sort of work 
in terms of, uh, you know, the, the week and it being completely consistent. Actually, there's a lot of research that suggests this doesn't speak to female physiology. So there are two things that I think structurally are really important to address if we are going to get to gender balance. Great. Thank you so much, Sama. Now, Joe, mm. as a woman who managed to succeed in what was, and some may still argue, a very male-dominated media space, do you notice the same structural barriers that Salma has highlighted, or do you think the barriers are kind of different in that media space? I think it is slightly different, but not because I inhabit a media space. I think it's different partly because of my age. And I can't remember exactly how much older I am than Salma, but Life has transformed for women in broadcasting and where I work. When I think back to when I started, where Salma is absolutely right is that the standard nine to five, the the sort of presenteeism, we would call it, the being there and being macho in that sort of old traditional use of the word was how women were to some extent expected to be. And there is a real physical issue and it, it is about having babies. Um, so I found that when I started, there just wasn't that acceptance that actually you could continue working in the way you had when you joined in your 20s. If you decided you did want to go off and have a baby, that there would be any exceptions for you. It just, it wasn't that it was particularly malicious. It's just that it wasn't really thought about. And it wasn't really thought about because I was only one of three women out of 12 to 15 political correspondents at the BBC. So, you know, just getting those issues out there and normalising them, that, that was a massive leap for us. No one went part time. No one went part time as a political correspondent. And... I was no trailblazer. I asked, I was the first one to ask, and I did a three-day week instead of a four-day week, as it was. And they said, oh, no one's ever asked. And the thing is, it's possible. So the barriers I was breaking and my colleagues were breaking at the time were, to some extent, quite basic. And what was shocking to me was that we had only progressed that far uh, when I joined. And it was everything. It was about women's voices, you know, seeing women on television or hearing them on the radio, just getting a different tone, a different feel, um, not measuring success by what were male standards because it had been so male dominated. Now, has that changed? Oh, my God, it, it's been revolutionised. I would now say more than half of the political correspondents at the BBC are female. There's all sorts of flexibility from shift patterns to acceptance that people do have kids that they might want to pick up. Has it resulted in less good broadcasting? No, but we are measuring what is deemed to be a successful political interview in a different way. And at the same time as that, We've got female MPs, a lot more of them. And they, on the other side, are the people that I'm interviewing. And again, that whole sort of tone of gotcha or having to prove that you know the GDP of Ulaanbaatar, you know, better than the other person is not now the reason for a successful <laughs> interview and making the other person look stupid. It is about trying to sort of illuminate the audience and the discussion. And so first of all, there was a right, we, you, of course, you can go part time, of course, we can do different shifts, the, the basic structural um, steps that were taken to allow women to be able to stay more easily. I mean, it was really hard at the beginning. I mean, so many of my female colleagues didn't 
come back or didn't stay very long after they'd had kids. And that has been the biggest barrier. Um, That's after getting the job in the first place. Since then, I think it has really moved. But I think we're in a stasis again. I think so. I think what happens is you take big strides and there's a sort of momentum and then there's a pause and and things sort of stay as they are. And then you think, actually, hang on, what's what's happening here? Why are we progressing more quickly? Um, the pandemic, I think, has been interesting because it's done two things. It's clearly it's been dreadful um, at a sort of general human level. At another level, it's let everyone think again about things from working from home. It's exploded that myth um, and made it more accessible. I think the world of work for women and men in a different way. I th- I think. The first place it has to start is with government. And I'll tell you why. Because in my experience, unless companies are mandated to do something, actually the cultural shift never happens because Mm. people are quite happy to live in the status quo. And there was a really interesting, when Harriet Harman, I mean, you know, me as a former Tory special advisor, sort of giving credit to Harriet Harman, Mm. I think is a big thing. And But she saw you know, when she was equalities minister, you know, the kind of pressure that women are under when they come back to work um, after having had a baby. And that is quite often the riskiest place for women in the workplace, for example, and therefore legislated to protect women who were coming back to work. Now, the reality there is that there are still ways that, you know, employers can skirt round and sort of make things difficult for women who are returning to work. But there is protection in the law. Uh, which makes people think twice about actually sort of shoving aside, you know, a new mother, you know, for the for that promotion or for that, that ease return to work. So I think it has to start with good legislation from government that recognises there are certain things um, that still affect inequality. Yeah. I also think that, you know, policy has to change, as I, as I talked about previously, with recognising that women you know, at the moment serve this this dual role, which is, you know, at the home and um, at work. And they really have to start thinking about how they capture that value because it's going completely unnoticed and therefore the female role is devalued um, in society. And so that, that has to be something that I think government drives. But Salma, I, do you not think that the issue, when they did the gender pay gap, when companies that were in the public sector were forced to actually expose how much they were paying women, I mean, that was a big light bulb moment for us, certainly at the BBC. Sort of, it confirmed everything we knew. Kel surprise. Um, you know, most of the men were the ones in the, in the, in the sort of highest echelons, the top earners. And most of the women doing certainly similar, if not exactly the same, you know, if you want to use the sort of legal term, were being paid far less. So, even before you get to what you're talking about, which is absolutely right, we should value what happens in the home and it should be men being valued for doing that in the same way. And I think we'll probably talk a bit later about without men coming on board uh, or the idea of them staying at home, I think it would be more difficult. Um, But the gender pay, it was, you know, it was it was one of those moments where you sort of think you don't care as much as you realise you do care about it when it Mm, actually happens. And you sort of think... How could you do this to yeah. to me, to all these women? Why did you do this? And you're absolutely right, Sam. If you don't kind of legislate for it, if there isn't a sort of compulsion element, they won't do it. And that comes back to a cultural issue of how those pay rises are negotiated. And although I don't want to legislate for everything and regulate everything, 
the idea that you that a couple of guys were in the boardroom or talking at the BBC and he says, look, I've got this big job offer from ITN. You're going to have to knock my salary up by 50 grand. And it happens. And listen, I'm not shy. I went in a few times. I was just told no. <laughs> I was told no because of experience or, you know, length of time at the BBC yeah. or because I hadn't done the big interview in a newspaper. But it was incredible how many of these senior guys had got these big pay packets and 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 we were just agog and then angry. And then there was this difficult situation where you think you are slightly made to be the bad girl or guy mm-hmm. by making such mm-hmm. a huge fuss. But a fuss was made. It is being rectified. I don't think it has been completely. So I think that, that was David Cameron, I think, Salma, wasn't it, who... Yeah. You said that anyone paid over a certain amount had to be published and we could see it all. And, oh, my God, it, it was yeah. like a, an anaesthetic being sort of poured on, mm-hmm. on pay. So that was a big well, issue for us. Yeah, I, I remember working on that gender pay legislation because we, for, very briefly, when I worked for Sajid Javid, had yeah. um, the equalities brief in our department in DCMS. Mm-hmm. And the, the gender pay thing was interesting because, you know, devising policy around that is kind of like, well, what are you looking at? Are you looking at like for like? Are you just looking at the general? Yeah. And it's difficult, but doing nothing was not the answer because it's a little bit difficult to do. And like, you know, over time, you Mm. will, this will settle and there there can be changes in the way that you sort of look at it, but the Mm. principle was the right one. I also think, just on what Joe was saying, I, I think it's really interesting that in the BBC's example, it actually took some very senior, serious women to actually say, no, mm. I am going to pursue this in the courts or, you know, through a tribunal. Mm. And I'm going to, and I am going to make a fuss because quite often, even if the law protects you, there is that cultural thing with women where they go, oh, I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm mm-hmm. not going to say anything um, because mm-hmm. they're go- they're going to think of me as as a troublemaker. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. like why why do you as a woman have to think of yourself as someone who's not just demanding something that is rightly theirs, but actually, well, I, I won't make a fuss because actually that'll put my job at risk. That'll put my reputation at risk. So that's something yeah. we also need to consider when you know when legislation comes in. Is that are we trying to defeat ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk about the personal barriers like confidence, for example, that stop women a little Mm. bit later. But I think if we take it a step back, I think formal structures definitely play a huge role in gender inequality. But it is reinforced by the fact that we're still subtly being penalized by all sorts of social and cultural conventions. And those are often driven by the media. So, Joe, for you, what Mm. role do you think the media continues to play in reinforcing harmful gender stereotypes, you know, and how do we challenge this? Well, I think in my role uh, as a presenter of a political discussion programme, one of the things I think that was reinforcing it, I'd like to think that that's changed, was there was a classic case of I used to share the studio with Andrew Neil. Um, hugely successful, very effective, brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. And I taught him everything he knows. And um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love him, but he was the he was the kind of senior. He was the kind of senior, and he was. I mean, you yeah. know, let's make no bones about it. He was the the senior partner, and mm-hmm. I think we have to try and get away. This may seem a little bit superficial of presenting when you have a, a duo of the the more senior male doing the more serious stuff and the uh, woman, the female partner, doing something slightly different. And because first of all, guys can do, you know, 
the more human emotional stuff too and they should be trained to do so because actually sorry just sort of uh, as a side look how much Boris Johnson struggled uh, and lots of male leaders with pandemic with health with having to emote and women in the main have done better Angela Merkel Jacinda Ardern and so on but that's one thing in the media that we can change so getting getting to do the show myself is hugely important you reset it and people Mm -hmm. think she's in charge um and that is a good thing for the media to do is to put women in charge not just Mm -hmm. in the boardroom and in management but on set uh Mm -hmm. and have other men and women and it it sort of equalizes it so those barriers that the media would present and reinforce as you say was to put people into categories too easily I think Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. and to be a little bit too conservative with a small c in some of the stories they were doing the some of the people that they had doing those stories Um, so we've tried to not just get gender balance but we've tried much more to have younger people as well as older people with experience to have Mm. of course people of every ethnicity but also of disability and this is not to sound woke this is to sound like we are trying to represent the society that we are broadcasting to and they bring different ideas and a different perspective and I think those are the barriers that were reinforced by the media and that does need to change I mean sorry just one other thing that I that got me was the Britney Spears I don't know if you've watched the Britney Spears documentary Mm, and you know it was really shocking to go back and see that footage of women as well, asking these questions of this young, vulnerable woman, making out she was a terrible mother and she mm-hmm. had basically let womankind down. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know, this was the sort of 90s. Those sorts of things have to change completely in the media. Yeah. Um, that, that, Absolutely. that sort of harangue. And that, that really reminded me of the powerful role the media does still play. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think in terms of categorising women as well, women politicians... Uh, get it the most because they're often presented in the mainstream as women first, politicians second. So you hear stories about their, you know, personal lives, their appearances as opposed to their policies. And some mm. I'd love to know as as someone who's been ingrained in politics, did this appearance focused culture place an additional burden on you? And how did you move past that? I think it's definitely true to say that women um, have it worse in politics and generally you know, this is not to sort of minimise that male politicians also, you know, do suffer a lot of abuse and, and get get it in the neck for their appearances and things like that. And I will just, you know, as, a, as an example, you know, I don't think Gavin Williamson is kind of treated fairly when he's always compared to Frank Spencer and has all those kinds of like, you know, <laughs> terrible front pages and the tabloids and people mock his voice and all that awful stuff. Um, so, you know, he gets it in the neck just just as much. But there is a different way that women are criticised and it is gendered in the sense that it is kind of like the appearance and like, oh, your voice is too this or, you know, too shrill or too deep or, you know, whatever it might be. So definitely I think that there's a different measure placed on women in terms of their appearance and Mm -hmm. women are boxed in in a way that men aren't. Mm -hmm. So if you're a male politician, yes, people do absolutely judge you on kind of like what your position is on sort of the political spectrum and, you know, that you've backed this policy. Um, Whereas women are sort of boxed in, she is like X. So you're either going to be like Mrs Thatcher, 
or I don't know, name any other female politician, because Theresa May, it was always hearkening back to how she was kind of like very similar to Thatcher. And it was like, well, can't she have her own identity? Mm. I mean, I know Boris Johnson like likes the comparison with Churchill, but I don't think people (laughs) were always comparing Theresa with Mrs. Thatcher in a positive way. So, you know, like, how do you broaden your own identity as a politician is, Mm. is, um, is quite difficult because quite often people aren't really listening to what you're saying. Absolutely. How did you deal with that? Did you ever have to face situations where you kind of had to really just look past being presented in a certain way? Well, do you know, if I'm totally honest, I don't think I I dealt with it particularly well, because obviously I was never, um, you know, a decision maker. I was only ever an advisor. But there Mm -hmm. was a distinction, I think, in the way that people treated me, Mm -hmm. uh, because I dealt with communications. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of a lot of the reaction that I got internally from civil servants in departments, you know, some, perhaps some of the older ones, uh, was that I was sort of the fluffy PR girl, you know, and I just did the PR. Um, and that's what political communications was. And they didn't mm. really see me as uh, a serious person to be taken seriously. Mm. And I think in some ways, because I was young and this was like a, a, a big job and I was kind of like finding my way around it, my reaction to it was probably slightly aggressive mm. um, because I, you know, I, mm. I didn't feel like I was empowered to mm. be diplomatic or have the ability to be able to say, okay, you know what, that's fine, I can move past that. When I first did it, I was 29. Mm. And then I got married and had a baby. And so, like, you know, the five and a half years I was there was kind of like a very tumultuous time for me personally as well. Mm. But, you know, as I as I sort of developed and we went into bigger departments, I felt more comfortable and more confident in myself and my abilities because I had a, a proven track record and my minister trusted me. But when I first started out, mm-hmm. absolutely, that sort of idea that I was just kind of, you know, I just did the press release at the end, mm-hmm. um, infuriated me. And I and I do think I reacted badly to it, if I'm honest. Mm. Mm, that's but, it's, yeah, but I wanted to ask you, Salma, because coming back to what Ragged is saying about some mm-hmm. of the structural barriers, you know, when they did the Blair's Babes um, all those years ago in 97, you know, obviously they had women-only shortlist. And the thing is, you can criticise it because of the need of, of of having to do it and not being meritocratic. But it did work in that sense. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, you got a lot more women in, a bit like the Conservatives with their A-list candidates. It was the same. And you can then make a judgment about whether they really were the best candidates or whatever. But it still felt then, and it does still feel a little bit now, that you do have to take those steps. Because as you said some at the beginning, otherwise change doesn't happen. And it may yeah. be right or wrong, but I do broadly believe that you have to force the change sometimes and then people think oh okay it it worked um because on politics live we made a commitment bbc made a commitment to have 50 50 programs all across the week and we've achieved that uh and and actually it, it wasn't easy to begin with and now it happens automatically we don't actually have to try because there are more women in the jobs and the political roles mm. whom we're trying to get on so you know when you come on the show Salma and we have you and two other women um mm. so three of the four guests are women it's not now because we thought oh now we must get a female former special advisor on or whatever it is it just happens mm. to be you yeah. are a woman and you're there so that I've really noticed that change because before we would have to hunt because there just weren't enough women in those roles when we wanted to get those people on the programs now mm. it just isn't a problem so yesterday 
you know, we had Poppy Trowbridge, who used to work as a special advisor in the Treasury. Um, and we had Lisa Nandy, who is Labour's shadow foreign secretary. And we had Nancy Fielder, who's the editor of the Sheffield Star. But what we wanted was a newspaper editor, a Labour politician and a Conservative in your sort of former role. And they all just happened to be women. And the only one who was a guy was a Conservative MP, Tom Hunt. So yeah. they're... But in order to achieve that, we had to make ourselves with uh-huh. targets, hit that 50-50 and it's uh-huh. worked. And I think the programmes are better for it. Uh-huh. And we trained women. We would do uh-huh. training sessions for women who'd never been on the telly before on that sort of programme. Uh-huh. Stay after a show and do a recording. So you're setting them up to succeed. Uh-huh. You're not trying to say, let's see how you fare, sink or swim. And I think that attitude is so much more positive and has yeah. been a marked change in a, a sub- sort of... Uh, structural barrier to women going mm. on because they're terrified. Yeah, mm. I, mm. I have to say, I, I definitely, when I was younger, used to sort of poo-poo the idea of quotas um, mm. and you know affirmative action. Yeah, because it was kind of like you know I'm going to prove this by myself. Yeah. But yeah. I think the, the the reality is, unless other people see people like themselves in that role and think, well, if they can do it, I can have a go. You're never going to get that funnel system. Mm-hmm. And so I've had a complete about exactly. turn on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, it's interesting. And the funnel system is exactly right. Um, but now we need to do it for black and Asian uh, media stars or politicians mm-hmm. and broadcasters. So the funnel system is exactly the same. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, as someone who specializes in digital communications, I'm always very intrigued by the role of social media. Do you think social media is a help or a hindrance in terms of moving the gender agenda forward? We'll start with you, Jo. <laughs> well, it's an interesting question because yesterday mm-hmm. we were talking about the democratization, if I can actually say it, mm-hmm. of... Um, <laughs> of social media allowing Mm. um, everybody to have a view. Mm. Um, I remember Liz Truss uh, once saying in an interview we did, it's great that, you know, you can be uh, a young girl sitting in your bedsit in Blackpool and you can have a voice and you can talk and you can respond and uh, have views. And that is true. Mm -hmm. But, and it is a big but, and probably because I'm not the most avid uh, social media user, I I do think broadly it is a good thing Mm -hmm. for for women and for gender equality. Mm -hmm. The problem is it can be unbelievably brutal, aggressive, racist, uh, misogynist, because, of course, it allows everybody that space. And you can find yourself being drawn into some very unpleasant um if you allow yourself to be some very unpleasant discourse and Mm. you know we can talk about regulation and whether there needs to be but there are a a multitude of examples where you know women have really struggled and i'm sure a a lot of men Mm. too but women in the public eye oh you can really get some choice social media commentary sent Mm. to you and there it is it's all out there for everybody to read my my view and my response is don't go there i mean very rarely dip your toe into the into that sort of violent almost discourse and the other issue i have with it is that it's an echo chamber so i think we've lost the art of persuading people over to our side yeah sama what what do you think of social media so for the most part i find it really useful. Um, And I have not really experienced the kind of hate that I think someone like Jo would have because she is, you know, a a mainstream media presence. Mm. Um, So I think people have, you know, vastly different experiences of social media. 
I think there is probably a study worth doing, and maybe Ragan, you know the answer to this, about the kind of like the demographic breakdown of people who use Twitter or broadcast social media rather than things like, you know, Instagram, which is kind of like engaging with things more positively. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and I'd love to see the breakdown of kind of like how many women are actually really vocal on social media or how many ethnic minorities are really vocal on social media and whether any of those groups cross over because it's just kind of like, you know, the echo chamber argument of social media, I think, makes discourse really difficult because either you're looking for people to kind of like validate your your own view mm-hmm. or you're looking for people to kind of, you know, be angry at. So I think, you know, some of the patterns of behaviour on social media, I think I'd, I'd really love to know how that how that works to see whether there is anything that you can do to kind of like crossover conversations because mm-hmm. it is going to continuously drive division if there isn't uh if there isn't con- some kind of assessment on what it's actually doing <laughs> to our, yeah. our consciousness uh, yeah. you know in terms of the content that we're that we're constantly taking in from them absolutely and so i think that's super fascinating in terms yeah. of those platforms absolutely just on that actually so many studies have been conducted to assess uh the impact of social media on particularly younger women and, you know, platforms like Instagram, as much as they actually provide, um, you know, attention to different types of women and they highlight body positivity and so forth, they lead to a lot of mental health issues in younger women because they see the perfectionism that exists on the platforms and they can't achieve it. And so for them, it becomes an issue of, you know, am I good enough? Is, you know, should I be who I am or do I need to aspire to be this influencer or that influencer? So I think the breakdown is absolutely right. I think there was also a really interesting breakdown around um, women from certain communities, be it, you know, Asian women or black women and how the content actually tends to discriminate against them in many cases, but it's about them pushing their own narrative. So I think it's a double-edged sword. In some ways, I think it's enabled communities to, to push for women's rights and ethnic rights and other rights. But it's also simultaneously, as you say, created news feeds that just reinforce our own social and cultural biases um, without us even noticing it. So I think there's a lot of question marks around it. And I think as someone who has a daughter, I wonder if you would ever want to keep her away from social media for some time. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's not going to know that phones exist for at least another 10 years. <laughs> because that is the kind of responsible parenting I am into no I know it's going to be it's going to be hard um yes but yeah Mm -hmm. you know every every kid that sort of picked up a smartphone and was able to do that over the last sort of 10 years has got a completely different experience to you know social norms to to me so um yeah obviously I am very conscious about that but (laughs) you know I'm going to try and keep her addicted to CBeebies for as long as possible (laughs) That's good. That's a good shout. So moving on from the structural to the social, I want to talk about the personal. Earlier, Joe, you mentioned, you know, women's confidence and the push for them to to ask for things. But several studies show that women tend to be less confident in themselves than men, even when they are probably better for the job and have more ambition. And I think that it's not for all women, but I know from my personal experience, I've stopped chasing some opportunities because I didn't feel like I met all the criteria at the time. Do you think women are their own worst enemies? Yes, I do in that regard. And and twofold. I was reminded about it yesterday. Um, I, I, I won't mention the person's name because this is a job interview that she's going for. And the first thing she said is, look, I, I, I really feel I, I've done everything that the job requires. And I said, do you know what? 
You don't have to have done everything that the job requires. You don't have to already be qualified for the job that you're going for. Now, that old adage that I forget, there's a sort of, there's a famous phrase that men who perhaps can only do 20% of the job say, yeah, I'm perfect for the role 100%. And women have to almost be at 95% or whatever it is in terms of having done the job before they'll actually apply for it. That That is a big confidence issue. And that does come down, Ragged, completely to how prepared you are to be a little bit brazen, to be confident mm-hmm. in yourself. And I don't mean about being overly assertive and aggressive. You, you mm-hmm. can be quietly assertive and you can be quietly confident. You don't have to ape what you think you need to do in meetings. It's about being considered. Mm-hmm. It's about being measured. It's not a zero-sum game where you have to be the person with the right answer every time. It's about self-belief. And actually in the media, if you're broadcasting and you're involved in politics like Salma is, it's about being able to present your argument convincingly and not worrying if the response is, what on earth are you talking about? Well, hang on, hear me out. Because again, When we sit in those editorial meetings, I'm always keen to get as many people to talk up as possible. But some Mm. people, and it is still mainly the guys, are just a lot more confident at presenting arguments that actually I've heard someone else say, but they just haven't quite pushed it as as hard or said it with as much self-belief. Do you you think it's that or do you think it's just that men aren't scared of sort of embarrassing themselves even when they say something totally stupid? Yeah, yes. (laughs) I do. I do. And I think, again, age age can have something to do with that because I don't care anymore. I mean, you know, mm. when I say I don't care, yes. I don't mean it in a flipper way. What I mean is it doesn't matter to me. I don't mind. Um, I think there is an issue, though, mm. um, and Salma and Ragged, you may agree, with a sort of brand. If you have a brand, if, um, if you have a, a sort of USP, it's something you want to nurture, you want to develop as a, as a, as a woman or a guy, then, then I think you, you are a little bit more sensitive about the response, Mm. how you're presented. And that's a good thing. I don't have a brand. It's always been one of the really Mm. bad things that I've never developed. And without it, I'm less embarrassed about, oh, you know, if I do make the odd mistake, um, I can cover it up. I can laugh it off, as Salma said. But guys (laughs) are much better at that. They are. But on on the brand, do you think that's something you create or that's something that's given to you? Because, for example, I know in workplaces, people always see me Mm. as, the nice person. And so when you do step up and you're a bit more forceful, they're like, oh, what happened? That's not my, my brand. But it's never really a brand that I wanted to put out there. People just sometimes associate it with you. And that sometimes does stop you. Actually, you're right from wanting to be the mean person if you're seen as the nice person yeah. in a workspace. Look, this, but this, this is the exact problem, yeah, right? Yeah. We women are as multifaceted as everyone else. Yeah. Like some days you're going to be really, really nice. Mm-hmm. And some days you're going to have a really tough day and you just need people to do what you've asked them to yes. do. And that is just the way it Absolutely. is. And this is, and I, I don't know why it's kind of like, we have to have this characteristic mm. and that, that is just forever the role we are going to be cast in and whatever we're going to play. I'm allowed to have good days and I'm allowed to have bad mm-hmm. days just as everybody else mm-hmm. is. And, um, this idea, this this pressure that you constantly put on yourself is that you have to be really nice all the time. It's completely emotionally unsustainable. There was this brilliant tweet that uh, Gabby Hinsliff once put out mm. that she was like, why do I always start emails off? And like, I'm, I'm really sorry if, <laughs> yes. if, if this sounds silly. Yeah. And I don't know anyone other than women yeah. that start their emails off like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Is this really terrible? Yeah. And, I, and I, I, I used to do it. 
And I, I'll tell you, I, I credit one man <laughs> with with stopping that habit <laughs> when I was like 26 years old. Good. And it's Matthew Wright. <laughs> and I worked, I, I was um, a researcher on his programme, The Right Stuff, on Channel 5. And we used to have an editorial meeting every week. And Joe, you'll be totally familiar with this. And it's it's referencing back to what you said. Yeah. And he was tough, you know, he was really tough because it, you, you, it had to be a bloody good idea if it was going to make it on air and it was going to like pass his script. And I, and I started off the meeting and I was like, I'm not sure if that's a good idea no. or not. Yeah, and you're shooting, and you're shooting said, your idea down already. He said, yeah, and he said to me, why are you bringing this, to, this idea to the meeting if you don't think it's good mm-hmm. enough? He's exactly. like, either you think it's good enough to tell me this idea or you don't. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, it was like an epiphany. Yeah. Yes. And I was like, yeah, he's right. Yeah, this is, and he was like, you tell me, you sell this idea and you tell me why it's brilliant and why you're the only person that can produce it. And that's what I want to hear from you. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. do you know what? Thank you. Thank you for not mollycoddling yeah. me. Thank you for just saying that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's right. I mean, one of yeah. my friends who is in sort of brand management does write quite ballsy emails. And I, they're sometimes mm. a little kind of bombastic. But actually, <laughs> you shouldn't apologise. You should never start it with an apology or already mm. be pulling down your idea before you've even uh, presented it. But Mm. it doesn't mean that you can't be polite. And it doesn't mean... One of the things I don't like or we're getting into what we don't like do and do like but one of the things I don't like is is cliqueiness um mm. and you know that sort of playground politics that you can get sometimes in those group meetings men male or yeah. female um because mm-hmm. I don't think it's very healthy actually no. um yeah. I'd rather have a direct conversation I'm not mm-hmm. quite so good at the power play but I mean that that's what lots of yeah. uh, corporate and po- political and media circles are like so you've got yeah. so you've got to you've got to arm yourself just arm yourself a little bit yeah. and and coming back to the social media we were talking about mm. develop a thick skin just yeah. develop a thick mm. skin and yeah. push it away on that, actually, Joe, um, developing thick skin and having self-confidence mm. and resilience, mm. you both really have that. Has that come naturally to you or is that something you had to nurture over time? Ah, well, that's... Yeah, completely genetic. <laughs> I have to say, Salma, Salma has been like that since I met her. So I think it's, I think it is genetic. <laughs> um, no, actually... Actually, can I tell you, yeah. the first feminist I ever met was my dad. Oh, uh, love in the Southeast Asian community. Yeah. Love that. Well, he, he, he pushed us mm-hmm. and he was kind of, I mean, he was like typical immigrant dad. <laughs> yeah. You will be a doctor. <laughs> you, will, you will be a lawyer. But, he, but he, he was the first feminist I ever met and he really, really pushed us mm-hmm. and he never set any expectations. For, like, you know, he didn't limit our expectations. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that in some way, even though culturally as a woman, you do sort of pick that stuff up about feeling mm-hmm. nervous. I think he, he provided that confidence in saying that like nothing is is beyond your reach yeah, yeah well that's and I think great that an important grounding yeah, yeah no and I think it is great and it's great when your dad is a fe- is the first feminist uh, that you meet uh, and come across and doesn't sort of discriminate or distinguish um I mean my father was the same but Sarah and I share that immigrant background um you know Jewish dad East End mm. and Poland I think they just I think it's just sort of ingrained in them that mm. you are going to be able to do whatever you want mm-hmm. but it's interesting this idea of does did it come naturally no um it's, I've been helped by having an authoritative voice, which I have mm. had since I was quite young. And having mm. an authoritative voice immediately creates an impression of confidence. Mm. Was I confident? No, I I was actually, I, I thought I was confident. Mm-hmm. 
um, <laughs> when I was at school and when yeah. I was applying for jobs. But I realised actually, compared to a lot of other men and women, I, I, I really wasn't, I didn't quite believe in myself enough. I really did suffer from the, I'll always be found out. I haven't read all the right books. I haven't actually done all the things that you would expect a top flying graduate and someone going into the sort of upper echelons of whatever mm. it is people wanted to do. Um, mm. But I think that was me, that was genetic. And I mm. have I have made myself mm. over the years think, look, you are as good mm. and it's, it's you that's letting yourself down. You, you, yeah. you do have to believe in yourself a little bit more because when I was, if something was thrust towards me, if they said, you go out, do this report, I was very phlegmatic, mm. I'd do it. Would mm. I have put myself forward to do it? Yeah. No. And yeah. that's the difference. Mm-hmm. I think, I, you know you can do it because if someone mm-hmm. said, Ragged, I just want you to uh, run this podcast all day with 50 billion people, you'd yeah. say, ah, and then it would be happening and you'd just do it. <laughs> but exactly. if someone said to you, this is what I want you to do, you'd say, mm. oh, well, hang on a second. I'm not yeah. sure. You, yeah. you, you have all those doubts. And exactly. I think that's the difference. Mm-hmm. And I still have a bit of that. Yeah. And I wonder also if there's inherently a, an issue with the way confidence is, is defined because it follows quite male characteristics of speaking a certain way, being a certain way. Whereas you have women who are quite relaxed, who are very confident, but it, they don't appear it because we've placed yeah. a definition of what confidence can be. Yeah, you know? definitely. I mean, that's, that's when we could, that's what comes back to what's deemed success. What's de- yeah. So the measures of success are, mm-hmm. I think they are different though now. Mm-hmm. I think people will see a, a good, yes, uh, there is room still for that good aggressive interview mm. or presentation and mm. you get something out of someone that you, you, someone else didn't manage to do. But there is what you've described. There is the measured, there's the information gathering, there's the, you open up and tell me a little bit more about yourself and yeah. you can get a lot more out of people that way. And it's a very different mm. style. And you can be informal, relaxed. Mm. You're not trying mm-hmm. to show off. And I think that can be just as effective and easier to listen to sometimes and watch. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think... Um, I think I, oh, go ahead, Summer. I, w- I was just going to say, I think what's super interesting about that is that actually um, a lot of stuff has changed. Mm. Um, in terms of where where corporate leadership is seen, and I think lots of men are now taking on mm. what are what have been deemed female yeah. characteristics. Yeah. You know, Silicon Valley gets a really hard time, yeah. and in a lot of cases, you know, a lot of it is justified. But actually, that kind of like softer Californian style yeah. leadership um, attitude. Is, is slowly sort of going into That's the political world yeah. and you know that what, what they call empathetic leadership yeah. which is actually a different way of saying how women love them <laughs> yes um but but that is that is really sort of yeah. you know growing out and this sort of filtering into yeah. corporate environments yeah. family environments and i think uh is definitely having a, a an impact in the way that we do things absolutely so the theme for this year's international women's day is choose to challenge um and i I think both of you have challenged so many norms already, but I think I would love for each one of us to highlight what she would choose to challenge in this very moment when it comes to gender equality and why. Joe, do you want to go first? 
Yes. I mean, there are a couple of things um, in terms of challenges, sort of at a work level. I would like to take our 50-50 a little bit further and see if we could also do it across other sorts of socioeconomic groups or um, some sort of ethnic background. I just think, hey, let's do it. So I think at a work level, that would be a good challenge for us to do. And I wouldn't mind also doing the same with promoting women to some of the bigger editorial um, positions and just moving people around to see, you know, to see how it works and to see if that builds people's confidence. And at a personal level, I don't know if you're asking for the sort of personal professional, but at a personal level, I am going to try and develop a brand, my USP. I know it's a bit late <laughs> and I'm a bit old, but I I think it's time that I set myself a challenge um, to actually sort of say who I am a little bit more. I, I still shy a little bit, a little bit away from me being there because I'm not the story and I shouldn't mm. be dominating in that sense. But mm. I could have my own thing going on too. And I think I might try and do that in the next, yeah. uh, in the next year in terms of a challenge. It will be a powerful brand, I have to say. Powerful brand. <laughs> I agree, I agree. <laughs> Great. Salma? Um, so I think I'm going to do something specific mm-hmm. in terms of my choose to challenge, mm-hmm. what I choose to challenge. And I would like to choose to challenge maternity policy, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And when I was off on maternity leave, I read a brilliant article about how working mothers were basically in the first three months of their child's life. There was a pilot about how you could actually have your kid in the crib, you know, if you wanted to, and, and do a little bit of time in the office until they were three months old. Mm. Now, that's not going to work for everyone, but the thing I'd like to challenge is this concept of what motherhood then allows you to do, mm. and I would like to see some really serious, radical policies mm. around how you fit in your life, your working life, mm. with your family life. And I don't think we can have this idea that, you know, things stop at, at, at those thresholds so you stop being a mother at the threshold of the of the office and you stop being a working woman at the threshold of your of your door and i think there's there's ways that radical policy can really transform that yeah. um and um as a as a personal challenge <laughs> I, I, I dread really to think one. i dread to think <laughs> <laughs> what i'm going to do <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I think uh, as, a, as a personal challenge, I think what, I, what I'd like to do is think about other women in my environment a little bit more, because I think, you know, probably selfishly, I have focused on my journey and what it means to be a woman for me. Mm. And now that I have, I flatter myself, reached a point in my career where I feel a little bit more comfortable and confident. Mm. And it's, it's time for me to sort of pass the baton on to, to somebody else. Mm. And so mm. I think my personal challenge is, is helping other women mm. um, who might be going through a tougher time than me. I love that. I love that. I think my challenge is inspired by personal experiences, but kind of fits into work life and beyond. I would like to challenge women to take space and make space. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's really important. The notion of seeing is believing, but for a woman and a woman of color, if I had waited to see women like me in leadership positions, I probably wouldn't have pursued the career that I did. So I think we need to feel more comfortable with being the first, even though that comes with its own yeah. consequences. And I also think we need to make space, as you said, um, Salma, to nurture the pipeline of female leaders that are come, mm. come, come after us. And I think in previous instances, having worked with female leaders, it wasn't always the case that they pull you up with them. 
No. And so it's it's a challenge that I would love for women to take on, basically. No, I think that's great. And you're absolutely right. Mm. Women don't always do that. And I think that's, mm. our, well, that's how we should use our platforms. That's, that's yes. what we're here for, um, exactly. is to give back a little bit, else show the way and, and smooth the way. Exactly. Um, and finally, one question we ask all our guests is, in such a busy and noisy world, where do you go or what do you do when you need space to think and you need to try and find that clarity? I love to dance, for example. So I wake up dancing in the morning and I end my day dancing. So <laughs> what do you both do to find that space? Well, I enjoy, although mainly in the slightly warm months, outdoor swimming. And I have always enjoyed the sea if I get there. Um, and in the pandemic, you could actually do a little bit of, they say wild swimming, it's not wild, um, <laughs> but swimming in the rivers. Um, and I'm lucky enough that there's an outdoor pool nearby. I find that the most joyous um, mm. thing to do. And mm. it feels liberating and there's plenty of time to think. The shock of the cold um, sort of gets you into a different space. So that is my sort of newish, relatively newish special thing to do. Amazing. Summer? Well, I, d- I dread to say what mine is because you're, both of you <laughs> sounds like really active and sporty. <laughs> Crack open a bottle of, uh, I... of, of wine. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, naturally, for the, the day. But I actually like to uh, listen to gangster rap. Yes, yeah, <laughs> very relaxing. <laughs> Love it. I find that I actually find that sort of like the most sort of centering kind of music that I can think of. And so, so um, yeah, that's it. If anybody wants any recommendations, I'm very happy to favorite song to go. A favorite song, Summer. Um, at the moment, um, I my favourite thing that I listen to is Cardi B, Get Up no. 10. Yes. <laughs> I wish we could it's play that right now. It means nothing to <laughs> me, unfortunately, but I'm going to look it up. Look it up. You'll love it. <laughs> I love that. I think this is a great group to hang out with. If you think about it, we can have a pool party with yeah. rap music while we dance the night yes. away, you know? Invite me. Invite exactly. me. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully when lockdown's over, we can throw that party exactly. out for us and other I'm women there. too. <laughs> I'm definitely there. Fantastic. Well, Joe, Salma, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experiences today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, you've offered both long-term structural solutions and short-term actionable tactics uh, to help create gender equity, including, you know, putting a price tag on unpaid work, women stepping up when, even when they can't, and, you know, developing thick skin when it comes to media representation and beyond. And we're very grateful for that. And I think the one thing for me is um, that I would say is we need to just keep pushing for gender equality because it's not, it doesn't just benefit women, you know, men, women, children, and the economy. So we have to keep pushing. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Ragad. Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes on topics ranging from healthcare to leadership, which we'll be releasing over the coming weeks.